since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. You're Aiden? No, you're Aiden. I'm Aiden. <laughs> I'm Lindsay. You're Lindsay. I always forget that part. It's hard. It's it's the start of the podcast. There are only Lindsay. two of us. Aiden's name. If regular listeners, you you will know that Aiden has trouble with names. Yes, he's only been married own, to me, and and knowing himself for <laughs> thirty five years. In that case, he still doesn't yeah. get it right. And we've been together for almost half that time. Either so, way, yeah. we are the Bix. Yes, we are. And this is our episode <laughs> devoted to the Merry Wives of Windsor. Ah, it's so fitting that we're laughing because this is actually quite a funny play it was a funny yeah, play do you like that little segue that yeah i did that was yeah, good that was good. good very smooth um, yeah mary wives of windsor uh kind of an interesting play one of the most um different of shakespeare's plays that's not really <laughs> the a most qual- thing the most different yeah okay it's a different kind of play and we'll talk yes. about the various ways in which it deviates uh, from what we've seen before and what's to come i think as well it's it doesn't really match up with a lot of his other plays Let's it's, just well it does way. and it doesn't it does and it doesn't yes we'll get into all those do's and the don't do you do do's and doesn't do you think yes. this is a good point to are you ready to give a 30 seconds yeah sure i mean play? no but let's do it anyways because why not okay uh okay i've got 30 seconds on the clock you tell me when to go go so uh, Falstaff comes into town, the town of Windsor. He meets Mistress Page and Mistress. Oh my God! Forward, forward thank you. Uh, and he tries to sleep with both of them. They both then uh, make fun of him and put him in a bunch of humiliating positions. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Mistress Page has a daughter named Anne, and there are three suitors who are all trying to vie for her attention. Um, and eventually, she marries one of them. And in the meantime, hilarity ensues. Obviously. <laughs> And uh, that's, that's really the time. whole play. Okay. Whew. I was struggling <laughs> to actually stretch it out. I did. I borrowed the line. Hilarity ensues. It's appropriate in this one. There was a lot of hilarity. You know, you're, you're right when you when you say that you, when it's your turn to do these intros. Yeah. Um, you do tend to spend a lot of time laying the scene. You're like, in the town of Windsor, in the county of Berkshire, <laughs> half an hour north of... <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm laying it up there for you. In the year of our Lord, 1602. <laughs> <laughs> what can Meanwhile, I say? Meanwhile, 25 seconds have elapsed. Whatever. <laughs> I'm, I'm laying out the framework here, and then the did, story sure. comes along. And I, I think I hit most of the... You did. You did. But, and it's it's kind of a confusing story. And we'll, we'll get into this, but um, it was... It, there's one thing to read it, and there's another thing to yes. watch it being performed. And I will say, I mean, we'll... I, I want to go through some general info first yeah. to get the play out of the way, but... Um, Aiden started reading this before I did, and he came out of the office at one point, and he says... Oh my God, Lindsay, I have no idea what's going on in this play. And I got terrified. I was like, we've just blundered through all of the history plays, which are like notoriously difficult to maintain your attention and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, Mary Wise of Windsor is supposed to be fun and lighthearted and, and he's, he's struggling with this. Oh my God. And I ended up loving it from the beginning. Oh. And I think the reason is oh. because I, I, as... I have for the last few episodes. I've been listening to it on audiobook mm-hmm. as I as, as I read, read it. Yes. So I, I do think that that gives something back to the story yeah. that just reading it alone Maybe doesn't lacks. do. Yeah, that's fair. But anyway, let's get into the general info. Yep. This play was likely written between 1597 and about 1601. Um, I think it was first performed in 1602. That's what I heard uh, a story rose up about it that, um, well, we know that Queen Elizabeth, that Falstaff was a very popular character mm-hmm. and, and a favorite of Queen Elizabeth's, but a story rose up that she challenged Shakespeare to write a play featuring Falstaff and gave him 14 days to do it. Um, if that's true, I mean, I, I highly doubt yeah, that it's, it's true. That doesn't probably seem... Probably apocryphal, let's be honest. But... Yeah, but... Uh, it does seem like this play was written quite hastily. There are a few places where, you know, storylines emerge that don't go anywhere. And or, they're... Yeah, you're wrapped up 
haphazardly. And, yeah. yeah it's, and it just, it feels like it's maybe a little bit unfinished, but that might also be a result of cobbling together quartos and folio versions and yeah, blah, blah, blah. I don't, yeah. I actually don't know the publication history of this. We've never really talked about the publication history. No, I mean, this one did have a, a quarto. Uh, it was in the actual notes to the okay. version. Uh, so there was a original quarto, probably around the time of the initial uh, performances. Uh, and it's notable mostly for the stage direction. There's a ton of stage yes, direction in the porto uh, that's not actually in the folio, which is actually kind of makes it very hard to uh, read the folio without it. I can't even imagine because there's mm-hmm. so many intricate scenes of uh, people stealing people away in the, the final scene and people having asides and all these these various conversations. That so are the version on. that's in the Folger edition is from the quarto. It's the folio with the quarto's stage directions. Okay, because when I was listening to I was listening to the. Oregon Shakespeare Festival's um, 1954 production. Yeah. And there were lines that were different. Yes. And lines that were attributed to, for example, I think it was like uh, Nim and Pistol or something were switched. Mm. And I thought, well, that's going to make things confusing later on. And it, it didn't really. But yeah. I, it just made me wonder how much of a difference there was. Yeah. And I do know that in the Folger edition, it specifically said at one point in the very last scene, the colors of the dresses that that um, the fake yeah. and pages were supposed to be wearing were switched. Yeah. So whoever grabbed the white and page ended up with the green and page when the yeah. stage directions brought her back on and it really weird stuff like that that are probably just mistakes mm-hmm. i don't know if that can be attributed to sloppy writing or yeah quick writing, or, yeah but. yeah or just someone copying in the folio doing a, a poor job there so yeah yeah there's lots of ways um I read on the Sparknotes website that this play was actually a favorite of Friedrich Engels, who is uh. one of the writers of the Communist Manifesto, um, which is sort of fitting when you consider that this play really does its level best to level the playing field between the classes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the rise of the middle class was happening at this time. Um, that's something that Engels would have been heartily in favor of. Yep. And uh, and all of the high-class characters are really, with the exception of Master Fenton, are really taken down a notch. Falstaff, yeah. Dr. Caius, I guess, in a sense, if you can count doctors He's as part of the upper class. He's kind of a middle-class character as well. But the Parson yeah. Hugh Evans, yeah. again, um, maybe higher middle-class. But yeah. still, these are, these are not um, body, low-class, pistol, nim, bardolf, quickly characters. Yeah. They are elevated, educated People, Falstaff uses very Heidi, Heidi, <laughs> high and mighty, high and mighty language <laughs> um, when it comes to his interactions, and and those are all characters who are really taken down a notch um, yeah. by the end of the play. So it it does represent kind of an interesting um, social structure leveling um, ethos, I guess, by yeah. the end of it. Yeah, it is interesting to note that it is one of the only plays. No, in fact, the only Shakespearean play that's both contemporaneous to the ostensibly contemporaneous to the time that it was per- performed yeah. and set in an entirely middle class setting. Yeah. A town. A, a town, township as opposed yeah. to either the city or 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 the some rural magical yeah. Illyria or the yeah. Forest of Arden. Yeah. Which is, you know Or an Italian town. Villa. Just, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or ancient whatever. Yeah. Like it's it's a very modern play which is weird because it features characters that existed in older plays that he'd written not older by years and years but plays that were set in the early 15th century yeah but now are being transplanted to the early 17th century which made me think of shakespeare writing his own fan fiction kind of fan fiction with falstaff yeah well it it feels like that but even the character of falstaff doesn't translate exactly it's he's not quite as bumbling and he's not really even the center of attention so much in this one it's he's kind of a tangential character to the overall thrust of the play i like Um, how you say tangential i say it wrong don't i you say tangential You've always said that, oh and gosh. I just think it's really fun that you say it that way. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. No, I listeners. love it. Okay. Well, I it's don't. Like, now, it's now like now a I'm malapropism. Never gonna use the word. I am never going to use the word again. Thank you, Lindsay, for making me so self-conscious. <laughs> I'm so but anyways, sorry. no, it's fine. Uh, Falstaff is, yeah, he's kind of a side character in this yeah. in this whole bit. Um, and he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't have the the witticism and the, no. uh, you know, the the uh, moral invincibility that that the Falstaff of well, Pioneer the Fourth Part One and Two even, kind of had. Even his wit is yeah. really reduced. He's yeah. he is a comic character whose purpose is to showcase the Merry Wives, yes. Mistress Page and Mistress Ford, who yeah. are the objects of his affection and um, the source of his. Uh, 
misfortune, I guess, in mm-hmm. in this play, which really isn't all that much. But um, yeah, he's he's kind of incidental, I guess. Like he's important to the plot, but it's not because of anything he does. Yeah, his importance well, to the plot is really how he's able to be manipulated, which is yes. really a, a symptom of his. Yeah, beyond the initial incident of him approaching yes. both women uh, for uh, sexual intercourse, yeah. uh, he really doesn't have anything to do. Uh, he has no agency whatsoever, no, really. Within he's the, pushed within around the story. and yeah. manipulated, and yeah. he has a few funny moments when he reveals himself, yeah. jumping out behind an heiress. Yes. Which or is great, but. <laughs> leaping into a buck basket to yeah. be dragged down to the Thames to be washed. Um, and the scene at the end with the, the horns on his head is, is quite funny. But yeah, it's, um, it is it is interesting to see that he is um, so far removed, I guess, from the, the heights uh, that of, he was previously, yeah, that he previously enjoyed. Yeah, and I mean, it is different in that those were history plays in which he was the comic relief. Here he's in a comic play mm-hmm. uh, in which Every he's one of Mary. Yeah, exactly. There are yeah. many characters who can be played comedically, uh, especially as we saw in the BBC version. Yes. Um, so yeah, let's let's talk a bit, little bit about that that comic theory yeah. that existed in Actually, the time. Actually, it's a great yeah. I, I think that's a good thing because um, when we were both reading this, I mean, I took a course years and years and years ago about restoration yeah, comedy. That's right, or restoration drama. Yeah, and um, so my information might be a little bit off. I did a little bit more research on this, but yeah. Aiden, um, there's there's two different uh, schools of thought when it comes to comedy in this time period we have like renaissance comic theory or renaissance dramatic theory i guess when it comes to comedy um the the italian theorist lodovico castelvetro Mm -hmm. that that's pretty dang close yeah um he wrote (laughs) in the early 1500s that there were four things that create comedy and these four things were that everything that becomes ours after we've desired it long or ardently, if we get those things or in the process of getting those things, that can lead to comedy. Um, deceptions, as when a person is made to say, do, or suffer what we what he would not say, do, or suffer unless he were deceived. Mm-hmm. Wickedness of the soul and physical deformities cause comedy. Yep. And for all the things to do with carnal pleasure, like the privy parts, sexual intercourse, and the memories and representations of both. Those are the four ways that comedy can arise in a renaissance uh, drama. Yeah. Um, this was a time of, as we've mentioned many times before, of kind of shifting morals and shifting um, ethics when it comes to things like this. There was social mobility happening. So a lot more freedom is given. And and we have to remember, too, that prior to this in medieval drama, really, they were religious plays only. So yes. this is... This the is the idea of out comedy of, at all is... Yeah, it, fresh, it might yeah. have been physical comedy. Yeah. Like, that was it, right? Yeah. But then you'd have this this new kind of... Spirit of freedom, I guess, when it comes to the plays. And, of course, they still had to adhere to certain standards of decency or they would be pulled from the, the stationer's register and you wouldn't see them on stage and ever. The playwright would never be seen again either. Yeah, Pretty much. Um, but th- those are, generally speaking, the four ways that you could generate comedy. And all four of those are pretty much mm-hmm. represented here. Yeah. Um, the other thing that – or the other theory, I guess, it comes out later in the 17, uh, 17th century – after the restoration of the monarchy following the English Civil War, which yep. lasted from 1649 yeah, to 1660. Yeah, right and I think restoration, broadly speaking, it's that restoration period is from about 1660 to 1710 is where you find restoration drama being put on. Yep. So this is a long time after Shakespeare is dead and gone. But his play, especially Mary Wives of Windsor, does fit into some of the things that restoration comedy later would uphold as ideals. Yes. Well, and sources of comedy even. Exactly. Like, yeah, it, it, there was a definitely a different uh, ethos and feel to those to those plays and where they could mine comedy from. And this yeah. one feels like a proto uh, restoration play yeah, in a lot of ways. Because yeah. the classic I, the classic example of a restoration comedy was a drawing room comedy. It was a, mm-hmm. a set in the parlor of a middle class household and it was a comedy of manner. Mm-hmm. It was um, how are we going to make fun of the morals of the people on stage without ascribing to them any kind of moral of our own so there was no moral to those stories it was just this guy is an absolute bumbling ass and we're going to make fun of him for it or this person doesn't understand the social structure in which he exists so we're going to make fun of him for it and you find a lot of characters fit into um 
uh, tropes or stereotypes, Mm -hmm. the fop, the rake, the, you know, the beautiful woman, virginal woman, you Mm -hmm. know, these are all characters that exist in restoration comedy. They're characters that are kind of played with here. They're not quite as, as set in stone, but, um, but the play still feels very much like a proto comedy of manner. Yeah. And that's, um, that's really interesting to me because it's like 60 years before, you know, yeah, someone like being... Congreve or uh, I'm trying to remember some of the other restoration dramatists before any of them are, are putting on their, their fantastical, ridiculous comedies that came out of the, the height of the restoration. Yeah. Um, so in saying that, it's not really 100% in either camp, right? Like it's not, yeah. it's not fully a, a renaissance comedy. No. Um, because it doesn't have, I mean, there is a return to the pastoral sort of in the end when they all go out yeah. to the forest, but it kind of feels tacked on and it's, it's well, not. Well, it's also part of the public shaming though that, that yeah. false avengers, like it's, it's not quite uh, simplistic that way. Yeah. That this isn't, this isn't going off into the woods in midsummer to yeah. find your true love, right? Yeah. Like that, that is very much part of a re- Renaissance comic tradition. I mean, they do do it with Mistress or with Anne Page and uh, Master Fenton. Master Fenton is the, the two characters who do kind of fulfill that. That typical Renaissance yeah. uh, marriage trope at the end and everything like that, but everything building up to that point is nothing to do with. Yeah, any and of it's those. and it's not like they go out to the forest to discover that they're in love. Yes. They're already, they're already in love, in and love. they're yes. using the cover of darkness yes. in the forest to escape, to escape yes. yeah. and then get married on their own yeah. against their parents' wishes, which is kind of a different thing than Illyria or Arden or any of these other mm. forest places or pastoral settings. Um, it's not quite fully restoration either obviously because it's not a restoration comedy but it doesn't um it it, while it prizes a lot of the body humor the uh sexual subtext the uh gross out stuff that comes out of the restoration comedies which were very much based on the court of charles ii he encouraged that kind of stuff to happen he wanted people to say swear words and naughty words on stage this is a different time. So there's yeah. there is still that that's still going on. But um it's not uh it doesn't it, there there is still a bit of a of a moralistic tone to it. Oh, absolutely. And it was interesting to me in reading about this that um in the restoration itself, this play was put on, but it was changed in order to make Falstaff um he's a bit more of the hero. <laughs> Well, because, yeah, because he's an upper class character that would be made fun of in an upper class comedy of manner kind of thing, um, his punishment would be different in a restoration comedy. Um, And the lower class people would be more virtuous. Yeah. In in like they they were really interested in in again in leveling that playing field in mm-hmm. in the restoration. So that isn't quite happening here. It's sort of starting to happen. Um everybody is brought down to a middle class level. Yeah. You're not being brought down to a low class level, but you're kind of in the middle, right? Yeah. And and that's that's one one way that it fits but doesn't quite fit a restoration yeah. comic. Yeah, mold. it's uh, yeah, like you said, it's it's proto restoration, uh, post Renaissance. It's a Shakespearean invention. Mm-hmm. Like really, this is we've talked about it many times in the past. Like kind of uh, how it was uh, Love's Labor's Lost um, didn't fit into a typical comedy format, despite no. it being a comedy. Mm-hmm. This is him also continuing to play with the structure and the the formats and all the elements of a comedy play. Yeah, leading them towards this more middle class kind of. Uh, framework in which the the restoration dramatists will and, later kind of pick up and run with and and playing with it to such a degree that like you know forty or fifty or sixty years later um, the wives the merry wives of Windsor would have cheated on their husbands yeah and that would have been central they would have also played around with Falstaff yeah. and and messed with his head but they totally would have been whereas here you know their virtue is upheld in yes. a, in an interesting way which. Why don't we start by talking about sure. the Merry Wives? Because Aiden, what did you say when we finished watching the BBC <laughs> production, the the stage production? No, the or the, the t- TV. Yes, the yes. TV production from eighty two. What did you say about the Merry Wives? These are my new favorite characters of yes. all time because they are just <laughs> awesome. Um, and uh, something that bugged Lindsay as we were watching, they're like, "Why are they so mad? Like, why do they want to get revenge on Falstaff right like, away?" From the beginning, Mistress Ford because is he, like he's. 
he's infringing on their chastity. He's infringing on their their purpose and it. role as women. Oh my god, Lindsay, it's yeah. like the boy in the back of the classroom keeps you know flicking spitballs. You know, just ignore him and he'll go away. Yeah. Okay. Does that, that work? That, that doesn't. That's never wow, worked. Wow, that's in a the terrible message of... to tell women. Wow. Okay, Lindsay, I'm glad I'm you're a saying, teacher. No, I'm not saying oh, that as a oh, woman you have it, to put you know, up with it. Yeah, I'm just saying. Okay, but they are I women. Boy, and... The student at the back of the classroom. I should okay. have said. Yes. Who's annoying the teacher? However, if they're annoying <laughs> girls because they like them, that's not such okay. a great thing. So that's fair. These women uh, do not take uh, his uh, shamefaced, uh, you know, in your face <laughs> approach <laughs> to wooing them very well and uh, subsequently punish him. And it's it's uh, it, it is the driving force of the the interesting half of the play because yeah. the other half of the play is this love story, this love quadrangle. I guess it's called a rectangle. You called it a pentagon. Well, it kind of. There was, I was like, well, yeah. I guess there is. There's. There's no. There's four. There's people four involved. people involved, but then yeah. there's like Sir Hugh. I didn't really understand his role yeah. in all of that stuff. Was yeah. he there also? Kind of according. I don't know. We'll get to Sir Hugh. Okay. I think. okay. But, <laughs> but anyways, so the those are basically those are the two main plots, plots right? Yes. You've got the the wives messing with. False staff. staff because he sent them both the same letter, a form letter basically, yeah. um, saying Trying that he to. loves them so much and he would like to sleep with them. Yeah. And they discover this and then decide to mess with him. And then you have this other one with um, Mistress Page's daughter Anne, um, who is of marriageable age. Yes, and pursued by well, three. well, not really, not pursued. really pursued by I all think, of them. I think it's it's, <laughs> it's this is where we'll get. We're going to talk about the role of women and gender in this play, but um, her parents have each lined up an advantageous match for her. She's rejected both of them in favor of her desired um, suitor, and the whole like that that subplot has very little to do with Anne Page at all. Yeah, she's barely. Again, she has like two lines yeah. the whole play. It's literally just an excuse to introduce Dr. Caius, yes. who is a ridiculous, ridiculous character. Many ridiculous characters. And Sir life. Hugh Evans, who is also fairly ridiculous, and also shallow, slender, who are all characters from mm. Henry the Fourth, Part Two. two. Again, not in their original format nope. at all, but yes. Um, and they show up, and they're ridiculous, and there's more ridiculosity. Sure, that's a good word. That man. happens around this that has nothing to do with love, that has nothing to do with marriage, and yeah. has everything to do with let's make these guys duel one another and mess with the to, English language. They, yeah. Really, that's it. It's true. <laughs> Why then the world's mine oyster, which I with sword will open. And the wives, going back to them quickly, Lindsay, yeah. uh, they, their role is kind of central to the themes around marriage in the play. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's all about trust and, um, faithfulness and, uh, you know, the, the jealousy that, that erupts when those things are not even broken, but you know, the, the, the seed is planted in, yes. especially the male mind of the possibility of, uh, cuckoldry. Uh, and it's, uh, the play just kind of plays with that and then just revolves around it uh, again and again and again yeah. to comedic effect on every revolution. It's it's, it's really it, something. But it's interesting that it's not the same as the way that the, the same theme of love and marriage or jealousy and revenge well, are played in with ado. in Much Ado yeah. or later in Hamlet or Othello. Yeah. Um, it's very much the, the trust that these husbands have in their wives – is not misplaced. They are faithful. Mm -hmm. They are just good-natured. That's the merry wives part comes in mm -hmm. because um, being a merry wife means that you're joyful. You're full of life. You are. Um, you're having a good time, but that doesn't mean that you are giving it out for free yeah. to everyone in town yeah. or every passing overweight knight who happens to <laughs> stroll into your courtyard. And that that's the source of comedic tension not um any yeah. other kind of tension which yeah. it would be in a different play exactly it and would, that yeah. that is really interesting because um the women are completely faultless like they do do nasty things to falstaff and maybe maybe he deserves it maybe oh, it goes does, a little too far no you could argue both i no, think no. but um but the point is that they're not to blame. Yes. They they are entirely faithful and they're just having a bit of fun. Yeah. And that is something that is kind of unique to Shakespeare. If you think back to Much Ado, um, 
the women who, even though we said at the time, and I still stand by that, that the the stakes are relatively low. Yeah. Like, uh, Hero isn't actually going to die. She just, they yes. pretend she's going to die when she's exposed as the quote-unquote unfaithful woman on her wedding day. Yeah. Um, here, there's never any question that these women are, are faithful, except yeah. when... Uh, and it's really only Mr. Ford yeah, and, who, who questions it. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that they have this dichotomy set up between Paige and Ford. Um, Paige yeah. trusts his wife, Ford doesn't. And so Ford takes on this hilarious quality of the, the you know, ob- obsessed with uh, fidelity kind of husband who like just like... the only thing he thinks about the, the thing, entire play. The whole play. And he, he goes mad and runs around and just does the most ridiculous things. Uh, he's searching in spice drawers for Falstaff, the 300-pound yeah. <laughs> knight. You know, like he's just... He's he's gone nuts. Yeah. Um, and then you have Paige who uh, is also kind of worried but more about his daughter's uh, chastity and, and, yeah. and marriage and stuff. He still has those concerns about... Um, you know, controlling women's sexuality at the end of the day, but it's it's directed not towards his wife but towards his daughter. Yes. Um. Uh. But they have the, these counter things, and they and they just work perfectly as as comedic suits. Like you just you you can amp up uh, Ford's craziness to such a degree because you have Paige playing the straight man there, just yeah. being like shaking his head with you know slender Dude, and everybody this else is just ridiculous. Like, Come like, on, you're, guy, like, you're really not doing yourself any favor. And it, and it just works. <laughs> it, it's it's great comedic uh, fodder for sure. Yeah, I think the 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 ridiculousness of the Ford character is really shown. I mean, there's not a lot of productions of Mary Wives of Windsor that are yeah. available, but the BBC version features Ben Kingsley as Ford. Yeah. And he plays that role with so much fun. Yeah. And it's it's interesting <laughs> because it's really Ford is a double role, right? Ford is Ford and then he also plays Mr. Brooke who yeah. is kind of on his own path to try and prove himself a cuckold yeah it's weird because he goes to falstaff as brooke to try and get falstaff to sleep with his wife so that well to sleep with ford's wife yeah so that he can then sleep with ford's wife yeah her her her, shame will be make her unmanageable and yeah yeah. exactly and so you know you get to see ford as the raging uh raving lunatic husband searching through the spice drawers but then you also see him going back to falstaff as brooke and being like oh my god you were in the buck basket ha <laughs> oh my god i can't believe i didn't check the buck basket oh okay i'm gonna get him next time yeah. and it's really funny to see that played out in in two different roles and ben kingsley just to to his horn, I guess, yeah. in a way, is, yeah. um, does such a wonderful job with that it was in so this funny. BBC version. So, yeah. Um, But yeah, so the, the presentation of these two different kinds of marriage is really... And it's it's interesting that the wives recognize it too. Like the wives are mm-hmm. just as smart about that in their first scene together. They're shown to be very, very close. They yeah. call each other, uh, I think... Gossip Ford, no, Gossip Page, Gossip Ford. Page called Mistress Page calls her Gossip Ford, which in the notes for the Folger edition was like that's a term of endearment that you would give to like your best friend that you'd sit and have gossip coffee with, with yeah, and gossip yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they're like really, they're really close friends, um, and they they remark on the fact that uh, Page's husband is understanding his jealousy is. I can't, I'm going to paraphrase his jealousy of me or or mistrust of me is as far away from my ability to actually cuckold him yeah which is an immeasurable distance like it's you know and ford says then your marriage is happier than mine because clearly she's she's subjected to um ford's raging at paranoia yeah yeah Yeah. at at often enough that she recognizes page's marriage as being a happier one um so in that way ford is really set up as as another comic character because um the wives are always one step ahead of everyone and they they mess with falstaff without really thinking about the effect on their husbands not that they don't care but i think it's just secondary yeah and it's all to prove in the end that they are faithful to their husbands. Yeah. And when they when they let Ford and Paige in on the secret, it's done off stage, and then we see them all come together and plan the final uh, humiliation for Falstaff. Um, it's interesting. They're all more or less on the same page. And then that leads into um, the conflict for the Pages, mm-hmm. which is in their disparate choice for their daughter's husband yes and how that leads them to be kind of ridiculed and um 
brought down again in that final scene. So you still get uh, a little bit of like both of these middle class men, middle class marriages are um, put under the microscope a little bit yeah. and 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 commented on in interesting ways. Yeah, but. And, in very it, different parts and related to those two different plot points. Yes, and then it's interesting that they both kind of wind up in the same place where they're reconciled. Everyone still loves each other. Everyone mm-hmm. still is happy with their marriage. Um, you know, Paige at the last the last couple lines is like, yeah, you know, you can't beat him, join him. You know, he, exactly. he, he, he welcomes uh, Fenton into the family. Yep. And they, it's just a very much like... And his, his it's interesting to note that his objection to Fenton was always kind of economic and, and classist he was yeah. like because fenton's a, a gentleman like a straight-up gentleman with upper class landed landed gentry you know yeah <laughs> exactly uh whereas uh they're middle class and so he's but he doesn't have as much money or something yeah like of course he's a, yeah he's a he's a, a land rich um cash poor kind of yeah. gentleman right downton abbey kind of thing yeah exactly yeah so th- this happened quite often in the time and we continue for the next couple hundred years but it's uh you know he's thinking oh well she's he's just after Anne's money yeah so he doesn't actually have her best interest in heart um, and this was a, again another uh, class focused uh, struggle struggle between yeah. that that exist in this time and it's and kind of a new dissolved. struggle too because yeah. you would never have a merchant who was yeah. worth more than the upper class yeah. this would be a very advantageous marriage for anybody a hundred years earlier so you're you're kind of thrust into this new social strata when you are middle class but have more money than the upper class who wants to marry into your Marry your money, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's just a different thing. But again, they all all kind of arrive at this kind of middle class restoration-esque solution of, well, okay, the restoration comedy would take it in a slightly different tone, but it's a very kind of modern... Uh, finality that that it arrives at yeah. with everybody's happy, yeah. everybody's okay. Even Falstaff is kind of okay at the end with being made fun of. Yeah. He's like his line about me thinks I'm an ass or something like that. <laughs> yes, uh, it's more than that. It's funnier than that. <laughs> it is, but it's uh, you know it's 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 a very kind of happy ending for something yeah. that had the possibility to go into the melodrama of Much Ado About Nothing or the straight up tragedy of Othello. Like yeah. these men could have become. So obsessed uh, with so their... So obsessed and, and angry and, uh, you know, dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but this kind of wraps up in a nice, in a nice, very nice way. And also um, focuses a little bit more on the changing uh, status of women, which we'll talk about in yeah. a bit. Before we get there, I kind of want to skip to the next big theme or mm-hmm. or theme uh, duo, the 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 idea of jealousy and revenge that's kind of put forward from the very beginning, as we mentioned with, um, with mistress Ford, mistress page immediately seeking revenge on, uh, on Sir John Falstaff for the horrible presumption of writing them a letter. I still don't get it. I still don't. I do get it, but I don't get it. It just seems unnecessary, but I appreciate it because it's funny. (laughs) Um, Okay. Uh, so I mean like, so the husbands are, are shown to be very jealous, uh, generally. Uh, I mean, across the page. Without need to be. Yeah, exactly. It's like I mean, their yeah. default state. Exactly. Which really does make me wonder about the state of marriages in Shakespeare's time. Were men really being cuckolded? Or was this just like, is this such a deeply inbred? Have we we've talked about this on the podcast? I don't know. Maybe. I don't remember if we have or not. Well, we kind of, we touched on it last week, but heard, yeah. uh, with much ado. But yeah. 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 I'm just, I'm just, what what's wrong with men? That's what I. That's what this play really well, makes. When me, women are, are okay? literally, when lit- women are literally your property. Yeah, yeah, you don't want people stealing them. So I mean, but at the time, okay. it kind of made sense in a, in a respect, right? Okay. Like the women are there to make you babies, and that's it. But we'll get to the differences. How this is changing. Sure. In a minute. Sure. Yeah. Okay. That answers the question for now. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> These are old class men who who come from a different. Uh, it's like. Boomers and millennials, right? These are. This is a different way of thinking about about how to relate to women. I okay, guess. Okay, we are not allowed to make the boomer millennial no? comparisons anymore. No, not on this podcast. You go way too far with them. It? Anyways, okay. and the women, meanwhile, are are their main uh, trade in the play is kind of vengeance. Really, at the end of the day, um, playful vengeance. Yeah, it's 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 good natured vengeance. It's yeah. it's domestic vengeance. I'll put it that way. It's not mm. the political vengeance mm-hmm. of oh i need to actually kill you because you're a claimant to the throne it's i'm just I'm gonna make, make you look like an idiot yeah i'm just gonna make you look like an idiot in front of the whole town and that's gotcha. that's how gotcha. they get it and it's it's uh so they have these two dynamics pushing and pulling on each other but throughout the course of the play yeah i like that um because it does kind of lead into um 
the, the the status of women again, which we keep circling. Do you think we should just jump right yeah, into that? Yeah, let's go into that. Because I think it's really interesting that um, you have this uh, modern anxieties about the increased mobility of, of not just the, the social classes, but also of, of gender roles. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that. that that comes like front and center in this play because you have, you know, a period of, I don't know, 60 years now or so where women have been on the throne yeah. from Mary the first to Elizabeth the yeah. first. Um, and that really has tested the social structures of England because, um, Mary was the head of the nation, but as a, as a married Catholic woman, um, she was bound to follow her husband, Philip the second, second, yeah, second I think so. of, yep. of Spain. Um, so, like her role as head of state was different than that of a king in that role, mm-hmm. and so Philip II was um, like superseded her in a weird way. So this is back in the fifteen forties, fifteen fifties, something around there. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Um, by the time you get to Elizabeth, it's it's different. She never married anyone, so there was never anybody who was lorded over her, and that was a reason why she gave um, for not marrying. Yeah. Um, but it came at a cost to her femininity. Like, yes, she was the Virgin Queen, but um, she she was seen as mannish, sort of. She was masculine, let's say that, mm-hmm. right? Where she was king and queen, basically. She she took a much more powerful role as head of state. And this is the period when this play is written. So um, the spheres of influence that women had um, were we're changing along with this. And mm-hmm. so there's this idea, um, this is in the, the essay, the Folger essay. Um, I wish we could share those cause they really are amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one talks about, uh, that, that sphere of influence, which was the domestic world yeah. and how women like mistress Ford and mistress page had complete control over the households far more than, than I think even the men, understand in this play certainly like women controlled the household finances even like like how much was being spent on food and and that wasn't something that men dealt with this was something that women dealt with so they had a relatively large amount of control in a middle class household that was springing up at this time so mistress ford and mistress page using the um the trappings of domestic life Mm -hmm. right to literally trap falstaff in a basket of dirty clothes to be hauled out to the river to be like that's it's so cool that Ford doesn't even think to check the laundry basket it's the largest thing it's the only thing that could possibly possibly hold this gigantic man but he doesn't think to check it because it's women's work it's domestic work it's not my purview yeah and and so it's like and when he does check it the second time, it's, he's ridiculed for yes. it. He's like, why are you looking through the laundry? What are you What are yeah, you possibly thinking? Exactly. It's like, and then they even use the um, the punishments for, um, that were experienced by women who were seen as unfaithful. Mm. Like uh, being yeah. dunked in a river, not just for witches. That's yeah. the, the tagline well. for that. Um, or, or dressing a woman, a man who'd been cuckolded or had, no, maybe he hadn't been cuckolded, but he accused his wife of being cuckolded, but she, of cuckolding him or whatever. Yeah. He would have to dress up in women's clothing and be paraded through town while being beaten. Yeah. And that's what happens to Falstaff when yeah. he dresses up as the the witch of Brainford. Yeah. And, and, and then is chased out by, by Ford and beaten until he's all colors of the rainbow, as yes. he says. Um, so they're, like, Shakespeare is using... Again, very middle class, small town um, ideas to kind of make fun of the situations that he's written about. You know, these jealous men going into these rages Mm -hmm. um, over things that that their wives haven't done. But the women are then getting the upper hand by using all the tools of their domain to really elevate themselves in the eyes of the audience and then later in the eyes of their husbands. I think that is really, that's kind of revolutionary. Nothing will come of nothing. The same thing can kind of be said about um, the the social classes and the social structures here. Um, so similar to the way that 
um, these characters, the lower class characters, Pistol, Nim, Bardolph, and Mistress Quickly, are introduced in the Henry the Fourth plays. Mm-hmm. Um, they are largely comic characters here, um, but they are they're very distinctly lower class characters. And mm-hmm. and Mistress Quickly is at an interesting juncture because she's a woman who's also a lower class character, so she doesn't enjoy the same kind of freedoms as. Mistress Page or Mistress Ford, yeah. but she does still run a household. She yes. she works for Doctor Caius, yeah, and uh, and she does express that she has, um, she does have control over his home, his household, and she does exert a considerable amount of sway over the goings on of the play in that. Every single character uses her, yes, to, to get to get to Anne Page, to get yeah. to Anne Page yeah. which is really interesting because at one point she mentions that i can't remember the exact line but she's like i will do my best by all three of them to play their promised as much yeah, yeah. yeah and uh and that like i don't know what her claim to end page really is yeah it's not super clear I, it seems like she runs she's just a servant who's been around the town and therefore knows everybody and, right and, but she plays a similar i mean i was i kind of pictured it as like the nurse to to juliet yeah. where like she's a confidant and she can uh speak to and page about anything sure. and everything so she obviously has access to her that uh the men will lack um but their relationship is never it's not it's not important it's it's no. because the comedy doesn't come from their relationship it comes from all uh, mistress quickly's complete frothing of it you know she'll just like <laughs> she'll just like oh yeah no yeah master fenton i'll i'll you know i we've talked a lot about that little thing mark above your eye yeah. and then she, tells she dr. sure Kais, loves you and yeah then exactly dr. Yeah. oh yeah, yeah she, she definitely, definitely loves, loves you, you. <laughs> yeah and it's it's just you know she's playing the same role um She's yeah, kind of the same role as as Falstaff in that she's just spreading the love around everywhere and then seeing where it yeah. will lie and then there's there's uh, this this comedic effect that comes out of it. And I, I wonder why. Like I, I don't really have an answer for it, but like is it just because she doesn't really have any skin in the game, so she doesn't care? Yeah, plus or I mean she's really played fun? dumb in this mm, one too. Yeah. I think it might she might really not even understand that they're all that there can only be one person who marries Anne because she literally just uh, <laughs> she she doesn't understand the lat there's a there's a very odd scene in the play that we have to talk about just quickly yeah. here because there's a scene where uh mistress ford right uh no mistress page it's mistress page mm-hmm. uh her son william gets schooled by sir hugh in uh, latin in latin and that's like the whole scene and then there's mistress quickly off on the side saying like not understand horum yeah. you're teaching him bad words why are you doing that yeah. right and it, it, it's just a comedic little scene it has no connection it's whatsoever often to anything. cut from productions i, I can understand that. why yeah. because there's there's nothing there no. but it really does kind of emphasize that mistress quickly is just not all there well and that that plays into i think both the social class structure because she does mix up a lot of the words um yeah. that she says <laughs> yes uh erection erection and direction <laughs> yeah. are, are mis mis uh, labeled or misused yeah. Yeah. um so there's so there's a bit of an educated like she's low class she doesn't yeah. she's not very smart yeah but there's also like the language play is really s- something else in this play and i think we can yeah. we can talk about that yeah. a little bit more yeah um because um in the characters of of both Mistress Quickly and then also these two foreigners, Sir Hugh Evans, who is a, a Welshman, mm-hmm. and Dr. Caius, who is French, um, the the wordplay, like those two characters butcher the English language. Mistress Quickly just misunderstands it, but Caius and Evans are like on another level entirely. Well, they're entirely. not speaking, because English is not their is first their language. Is their second language, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, and it's written into the text. Yeah, which is Hugh rare. Evans is, yeah, no, that never, I can't yeah. think of another character where that happens. It's yeah. just kind of assumed that if they'd play it with an accent. Yeah, they just do that. They would just do that. Yeah. But here it's like. Uh, oh, I can't even remember some of the words, but like, well, P, all his bees are peas, so putter. Yeah. He yeah, says false half is filled with putter. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Doctor, that's Hugh Evans and yeah. Doctor Caius. Um, Got. Yeah, um, mein gar, mein gar, yeah. un garçon. Yeah. He like there's butcher, there's bastardized French that's yeah. being used as a way, and and like interesting um, conversations that he has with. Oh, I can't remember who it is, but where they they're using things like mock water. They call them yeah. a mock water, which is I think 
a reference to urine. Yeah, it's like a latrine or something like that. Yeah, so they they're they're calling him Doctor Mockwater. They're making fun of him, and he doesn't really get it because he doesn't understand English. And and then the guys who are still lower class um, are getting one up on this learned doctor who's from France. So he's even though Hugh Evans is a parson and Doctor Caius is a physician. Um, so presumably of an educated class, they're brought down to like the lowest level of yeah. mis- of Mistress Quickly because yeah. of their misunderstanding of yes. the language of yeah. the play. And the language of the play, again, being a middle class pastoral or towny play, um, features so many colloquialisms that it. I get why Aiden, you had trouble with this because yeah. there are so many things that do not translate yes and yeah reading the Folger version usually you tap on a word in the e-reader and it pops up and explains it to yes. you uh there were like four or five things in the first scene where it was yeah. like the, the meaning of this is not well understood and i'm like this is not helping guys See i'm trying longer to note yeah exactly <laughs> it's like and the longer note is like thing. yeah yeah and it doesn't help much so because there, even the experts don't know what this stuff means yeah, because it, it's like a, a total colloquialism well and it goes bit. back to the whole point of it this being uh, a play that's ostensibly set in the in the 15th century but it sounds like it's in the early 17th century yeah. like it's just it is it is full of modern day shakespeare english um that just does not will not translate it it's no. like if you tried to pick up meme talk yeah you know in 200 years you it i mean maybe there'd be better translation and and uh you know the information might pass down a little bit better but if you just drop a layman into it and be like why is, why is the cat yelling at the lady at the dining table like what i don't understand what this all means. our base are belong to us yeah, that's, that, not, that's even not even proper English. grammar yeah, even back then it wasn't right so you have this this gap that, that exists now between us and the text yeah um but it, it does help to fill in this feeling of uh, this provincial town of middle class people. Yeah. Uh, where the, the the extremes of the Falstaffs with his his Sir Falstaff. Yes. Uh, and then the Mistress Quickly's can can intermix and mm-hmm. mingle and build uh, a repertoire of comedy together. Yeah. Uh, that, that just kind of works really well in this yeah. play. Yeah. And totally foreshadows what's coming when it comes to the, the yeah, leveling of, of classes, which yeah. is a fraught conversation even today in English society. But um, this is this is definitely, um, it feels very revolutionary in that sense. If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. So that leads us to our ancient bickerings for today, um, which is kind of a fun one. I think there's, there's going to definitely be... Uh, arguments good arguments on both sides uh or there will be arguments there, on both sides aiden who seems more untrustworthy in this play the men or the women would you like to go first or second? I, I absolutely will go first okay. because the answer is very obvious it's okay. the men okay the men are by far the worst characters in this play uh they completely lack uh trustworthiness between each other mm-hmm. First of all, especially in the the Anne Page story, where they're all lying to each other and setting each other up for for failure, uh, and just you know, you know, just just not doing a good job by each other morally at yep. any point in time. Uh, and then there's Falstaff, who's just the most untrustworthy human being in Shakespeare's plays, who manages to pull it off sometimes. But it, he's he literally starts the play off by just being like, "I want that woman." I don't care anything. I will lie to her. I will, I will say lie whatever. to everyone. I will lie to everybody <laughs> in order to get what I want. Okay. Um, and then he proceeds to do so. Um, then there's also, obviously, uh, uh, Ford just completely... Yeah. Well, A, he lies to Falstaff, which is, again, a very odd thing to do to go in. He he plays pander to his own... For his own wife. It's, it's a very strange... <laughs> Uh, situation there um but then he doesn't trust his wife uh he's dishonest with her because he doesn't, he doesn't just confront her again and we've talked about this in much ado too yeah. how like nobody ever just confronts each other and then they did it in this play the, the yes. women though had to do it they had yeah. to do that, that off act. screen or off stage, exactly but still, exactly but they okay. did yeah. and uh this play is noteworthy for that as well because most of the time the men and women just cannot discuss matters of fidelity mm-hmm. um and he can't because he he is a typical Shakespearean man in that he cannot trust women and he doesn't know how to talk to them. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear cut who's which gender uh, has the worst here. But, Lindsay, well, well the, can... the question isn't who's worst and who's best. Oh, it's who's more untrustworthy. Yeah. OK, well, 
Yes. And I think it's the women. Oh. I think it's the women who are more untrustworthy. And and I'll tell you why. Please do. Well, I think that, um, first of all, the play is called The Merry Wives of Windsor. So we know that they are the main characters. And Mm -hmm. they are the drivers of the plot. Um, All the plots really come from from these, uh, the actions of these two women. Yep. And, uh, And the fact that their untrustworthiness is far more calculated than the men. And I think this mm. plays into some of the stereotypes about women being more conniving, mm. um, that that they spend so much time figuring out the nitty-gritty details. They're both working together, conspiring together, whereas the men are kind of solo uh, deceivers, I guess, yeah. right? Falstaff goes off on his own to deceive these people. Ford goes off on his own as Brooke to deceive Falstaff. Yeah. Um, uh, Master Page goes off on his own to uh, deceive his wife in having his choice of suitor marry his daughter. Yeah. Um, they're they're not collaborative, whereas Page, Mistress Page, Mistress Ford are um, working together to achieve the same goal. And I think that there's just there's it's just on another level of conniving can connivingness connivingness. I was going to say conniption, but I don't think that's no, the word. No, I don't think that's the same word. No. Um, <laughs> but that's, uh, that, I think, speaks to the the ethos of the women in this play. The women in general in this play. Okay, but, okay, okay. Fair enough. Good yeah. point that they do. They put a lot more effort into their untrustworthiness. Yeah. I will grant you that. However, the whole purpose of their untrustworthiness is to become, to show how trustworthy they yeah. are. Yeah. yeah, no. Uh, well, no, no, no. <laughs> yes, no. Yes. No, because yes. it's about it's about sexual fidelity. It, there's nothing said about them being fun they're fun-loving women. This falls right in this yep. is in their purview, right? We're going to have fun at the expense of this fat old man who wants to make our husbands cuckolds. And and I think that that is a different kind of mm. um deception than if they were to actually sleep with Falstaff, which would which would be a different kind of thing. Because I it's, agree. It's I different think, I think because what that's doing, actual deception versus what they're doing is just having well, fun at Yeah, one but they're but they're deceiving morons. him. They're deceiving their husbands. They're deceiving Falstaff. Um, they're not the only characters either. You still have Mistress Quickly who who is Fair working enough. many angles against one I don't know how she keeps track of it all. Um <laughs> And Anne Page herself ends up pulling off the greatest deception, which really underscores the main, if there was to be a main theme here, it's that women have the power to choose their own fates in life. Mm. And Anne does that with Master Fenton. She goes off to marry him because that's who she wants to marry. And she engineers a deception of her own when um, Dr. Caius and Slender are to steal her away to go get married in their separate churches um she you know orchestrates this whole other plan so that she can steal away um with with her chosen love and i think that that but is so does fenton like yeah that, that one yeah. kind of cancels out because they're they're kind of all in on together and Maybe. fenton actually goes to uh the host of the garter which confused me for, again this play was confusing to read because his name is just host. And then people are referencing the host of the garter. Yeah. I didn't realize it was the same person until about yeah. the third act. So okay. again, I'm stupid, but <laughs> this play was difficult. Anyway, my point is the, the men in this play are, are, are the origin of all untrustworthiness in the play. The women play with that untrustworthiness and they feed upon it. And they, they, they have a merry old time about it. However, the men are the, the origin and the source and the the, the problem, uh, as as we've seen in the last four hundred years. Uh, men can be <laughs> a bit of a problem when their when their sexual feelings get hurt. So I'm just saying, Lindsay. Uh, well, well argued, but totally wrong. Um, so as a man, I will just take this W for the team. I will uh, concede. <gasps> oh I my will God. concede. Yes. I think that that okay. is We're a done. Good... <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. This was <laughs> a wonderful episode. Good, the way you phrased that, she made me change my mind right on the spot there. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. I still think, I still <laughs> think that there's something to be said for the deception of the women in this place. I think it's different. I think you raise a really good point in the fact that the women do it socially. It's, 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 the women are doing it in order to protect their sphere 
mm. um, which is a very kind of Victorian kind of mm. uh, interpretation mm-hmm. of it. You know, it's 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 a different approach than how we've seen well, women dealing with untrustworthiness. And, and it's, it's it's interesting that the men are possibly correct that their that their wives are not telling them the whole truth and yeah. nothing but the truth, but they think of it as. Far more vicious than it actually is. And I think that that says more about the way that men approach fidelity in a marriage or Mm -hmm. truth and honesty in a marriage than it does anything else. It's it's more, this play is really a fairly firm indictment of husbands, (laughs) which is something really interesting coming from Shakespeare. Maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. When we get to Othello, I don't think Othello she paints a very flattering picture of marriage yeah. and husbands either. It's true. It's true. But but it is it is kind of revolutionary. Mm-hmm. I keep throwing that word around. It was. But I, I think I this agree. is this is an interesting idea and, and I think this play would play very well and and did play very well in the 1950s you know what i mean mm-hmm. when when ideas of sexual morality um, were getting questioned again, were getting questioned again yeah. and into the 60s and i think that it's a shame that this play is not more well regarded because I it know. is fun it is fun i and mean you can cut a lot of the fat I think yeah, and, and like that whole host of the garter thing, there's a whole scene that was missing entirely from the BBC production about the stealing of the horses, which... Yeah, they mentioned it yeah, at a couple points. They want to get back at the host because he got them to duel each other and stuff. Yeah. Like there were there were just revenge upon revenge plots in this plot play as well. But Which, d- yeah. yeah, didn't really lead anywhere. When you really distill it down to its main thrust, it's, it's the plots against Falstaff and the marriage plot between Anne Page and her various suitors. And that's what was focused on. This play was has been produced at, in like ten different operatic versions or yeah, something like yeah. that, um, and and well into the eighteen nineties, I think. So I mean, it's not that this play isn't popular, but it's just not well regarded. Yeah. It's kind of seen as as a weaker play, and I think it's just so different from the other Shakespearean comedies. Even though it ends with a marriage and there's lots of funny stuff that happens and, and there's fairies and, and sprites fairies and, stuff, and sprites and fake. it's set and in it's, England and there's yeah. there's a, a bumbling Falstaff who features very prominently I, in, in a, a popular history narrative yeah it still doesn't hold the same regard and I, I think that's kind of sad because it's it's a really fun play it is parting such sweet sorrow that I shall say goodnight till it be morrow so what are we up to next, Aiden? Next, we are looking at selling Shakespeare, I think yes. is how we've temporarily uh, at least... No, I think that's I've it. locked it in. Yeah, okay. So we're going to be talking about, um, <laughs> you know, just the Shakespeare industry, uh, the whole rigmarole around, you know, the globe and Shakespeare's birthplace and bobbleheads and all the other little knickknacks that go into uh, the world of Shakespeare um, that you can buy. Uh, if you have the means, uh, it's a commercialized Shakespeare, um, and I yeah. think it's kind of in contrast to, and we'll we'll talk about this next episode is in contrast to the academic kind of Shakespeare that right. it's a little more accessible, and you can just pick up the plays and start reading, get them from the library, and watch the, uh, you know, stream a version online or something like that. There's that aspect to it, and then there's all the the money that flows uh, behind the scenes to kind of feed that that other that other world so we're gonna talk about that yeah i think that'll be really fun and interesting and then right after that we're jumping into the last of the um yeah, the, the, the history english, plays, histories, english yeah. histories which is uh henry v which yeah. is a popular for many good reasons popular yeah. play yeah and we did already talk a little bit about it for our hollow crown uh season one yes but this uh, time episode, we're going but... to re- revisit um kenneth Branagh's. yeah 1989's sprawling epic film, yeah. um, which will be fun. Yeah. Um, following that, it's Julius Caesar. Yeah. So we're getting into like the the last half of Shakespeare's career. Here is where you get the really high points, yeah. right? And so, um, yeah, Julius Caesar, which we've just recently, before COVID hit, we got to see yep. um, the Winter uh, City Shakespeare. The Winter City Shakespeare Festival yeah. put on a production of Julius Caesar in a church, yeah. and uh, we talked about that when we did. Um, Midsummer because they did Midsummer Night's Dream, but they but they said it in midwinter, which was really interesting. Yeah, because it was minus thirty out in (laughs) January. Yeah, Um, but yeah, it was. uh, Yeah, Julius Caesar is a fantastic play, and I can't wait to talk about that. So yeah, a couple of good plays coming up. 
maybe some stinkers. I don't know. I haven't read all of these plays yet, so I can't speak to that. Well, Does Shakespeare write stinkers? Well, there's still Troy Cresta and Timon of Athens and all these other ones that we've never read or heard about uh, or dealt with in any way. So, yeah, there'll be some stinkers that as well. That terrible King Lear, Macbeth, yeah, oh, what the hell? Boy, what are these crap plays? Anyways, join us for uh, these episodes and more in the future. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.